Walter Isaacson tells us that by Leonardo da Vinci's day, the church no longer completely prohibited dissections, although its attitude was murky and depended on local authorities. In Florence and Milan, though not in Rome, the practice had become common as Renaissance science progressed. Leonardo, who was not strongly religious, pushed back on the fundamentalists who considered dissection heretical. He believed it was a way to appreciate God's handiwork. Traditional anatomy instructors would stand at a lectern and read aloud from their texts while an assistant did the dissecting and held up the components for students to view. Leonardo insisted that his drawings were even better than watching a live dissection. You who say it's better to watch an anatomist at work than to see these drawings would be right if it were possible to see all those things which these drawings are showing. When Leonardo began his second round of anatomy studies in 1508, he made a to-do list that surely must rank as one of the quirkiest and most enchanting such lists in the history of intellectual inquiry. On one side of the page are a few sketches of dissecting instruments, and on the other, some small drawings of veins and nerves found in the brain of a centenarian, with writing crammed all around them. Having drawn various surgical tools, he jotted down some of the equipment he needed. Spectacles with case, fire stick, fork, curved knife, charcoal, boards, sheets of paper, white chalk, wax, forceps, pane of glass, fine-tooth saw, scalpel, ink horn, pen, knife, and get a hold of a skull. Isaacson continues, then comes my favorite item on any Leonardo list. Describe the tongue of a woodpecker. This is not just a random entry. He mentioned the woodpecker's tongue again on a later page, where he described and drew the human tongue. Make the motions of the woodpecker, he wrote. When I first saw this entry about the woodpecker, I regarded it, as most scholars have, as an entertaining oddity, evidence of the eccentric nature of Leonardo's relentless curiosity. That it is, indeed, but there is more. As I discovered after pushing myself to be more like Leonardo and drill down into random curiosities, Leonardo, I realized, had become fascinated by the muscles of the tongue. All of the other muscles he studied acted by pulling rather than pushing a body part, but the tongue seemed to be an exception. This was true in humans and in other animals. The most notable example is the tongue of the woodpecker. Nobody had drawn or fully written about it before, but Leonardo, with his acute ability to observe objects in motion, knew that there was something to be learned from it. By the time Leonardo got around to studying and drawing the human spine, he had been captivated by curiosity and the joy of research. His page showing the spine, accurately rendered and notated from a variety of angles, is a masterpiece of both anatomy and draftsmanship. Through the use of light and shadows, he was able to make each of the vertebrae seem three-dimensional. Complexity is magically transformed into an elegance that is unrivaled by any anatomical drawings of his time. Or ours, words of Walter Isaacson in his study, Leonardo da Vinci. That was then, 
What about now with the remarkable technological developments in the field of medicine? Joyce Cutler Shaw is an artist who has spent time developing an arts meet science project at the University of California, San Diego. She tells us that Hyatt Mayer of the Metropolitan Museum of Art has written that artists see what doctors do not see because they approach anatomy with a different purpose and because you do not really see a thing until you try and draw it. As a visual artist in an expanding techno-culture, Shaw says, I'm discovering a dazzling array of new medical imaging technologies as engaging as these diverse new visual languages are with their clinical and metaphorical potential. I persist in drawing by hand on paper. Drawing is a primary language. Drawing is a way of knowing. Drawing is a mode of inquiry. Hand drawing is a method of representation by dynamic touch and sight, an empathetic embrace of the subject with the eye that is translated simultaneously through the hand. This manual technology is valuable as a counterpoint to the new forms of electronic representation that split the body image from the sentient, the feeling self. And Shaw tells us when she got to UCSD, I arrived with the excitement of an explorer approaching an uncharted and mysterious terrain. Words of Joyce Cutler Shaw in her essay, The Anatomy Lesson, in the journal Leonardo in 1994. Isaacson noted Leonardo's curiosity and joy, and Joyce Cutler Shaw writes of her excitement and fascination upon entering the doors of the medical school of UC San Diego. We'll hear some of the same sense of excitement and curiosity as we meet Liana Pandey. Liana Pandey of Northeastern Pennsylvania is a medical student and an artist at Toro College of Medicine in Middletown, New York. She graduated from Wilkes University in three years with a double major in neuroscience and psychology. Her work has been published by the American Medical Students Association and the Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine. She had a solo exhibition here in Northeastern Pennsylvania in 2021 at the Wyoming Valley Art League. She's also taught watercolor at the Everhart Museum in Scranton. Liana paints realistic and stylistic medical anatomy rooted in her personal interest in science and medicine because she wants others to see the natural beauty in anatomy. She also paints landscapes, animals, and other scenes of nature. That from the American Medical Women's Association, which has just awarded Liana a National Artist in Residence Fellowship for 2022-2023. Liana returned to the WVIA studios to talk with us about her art and what the residency is making possible. I didn't expect them to both constantly be something I was doing, and I didn't expect to be nationally recognized for it either. That was really interesting. I always thought of art as just like a hobby or something else I would do, and then it became something very seriously that people ask me a lot about, and it applies to more and more that I'm doing with research and just different things at the school that they ask me to do. You mentioned the national recognition, and you are now an artist-in-residence, and you were awarded a fellowship. Right. Dr. Sammy Ali, who's an ER physician in Alaska, we're both the 2022-2023 awardees for the American Medical Women's Association Artist-in-Residence Fellowship. So all year we meet virtually and we talk about the art we've been doing and how it applies to our continuing styles. 
she does oil painting in plain air. Like, so she's really wherever she's painting. So she'll be outside doing landscapes. And I do the anatomic art. So I'm doing all kinds of interpretations of cadavers and their donors. And I'm also doing just different cellular interpretations of anatomy as well. So that sort of expanded the way I approach my art. What is the goal for you then with this fellowship that you were to, in conversation with Dr. Sami, refine your technique or because you have a partner who is a medical person that you can trade and give each other support? Tell us a little bit more about maybe these dialogues, what you're learning. We all talk about different ways to improve our art, and it's sort of the studio amwa, which is myself, Dr. Ali, Dr. Ko, and a couple other people who are artists. They filter in and out, and we all talk about what could we have done better? How could we approach a subject differently? Are there different colors we could have used? How is the composition? And it's changed the way I approach art because I'm someone who's taught myself how to paint all this time, and now I have to think about feedback from people who are very classically trained in it. So... I'm thinking about things that I've never had to consider and I've never even thought about them on my own. I've just sort of been doing whatever makes sense to me. So it's a really interesting take and I think it's changed the way I approach my paintings. What would be an example of that? Uh, So one thing they were talking about to me in one of my recent paintings was why I choose the colors that I choose. And I realized that I don't have like a formula, like I don't follow any kind of algorithm that other people might be using. I just choose colors that I enjoy and that I feel like look nice together. But it might be a good idea to consider a more formulaic approach or to put more words to thought in terms of why I'm making the selections that I'm making rather than have it be just a choice that I instinctually make. That's very intriguing because on the one hand, one of the joys of your work that we saw when you were at the Wyoming Valley Art League is that you might make a gold vein or a gold vessel and that that helps us sort of stand back, not that you're trying to do something that is not precise anatomically, but you've chosen a color that makes a vein or an artery stand out. And then we pay attention to it. Right. Like for emphasis or some sort of clarity on something that I'm looking at rather than would be like physically apparent because I'm adding color to something that I'm sort of visualizing myself rather than would actually be present in the structure. But I think it's from their perspective more about putting words to that thought process. But I was also at the Whitney and they just have the exhibit with Edward Hopper and half of his quotes are about not being able to put words to your own paintings. So I think it's kind of ideologic at that point. So that's sort of the kind of conversations we're having. It's different approaches to art and what you can take away from that is different depending on what your goals are. And I wanted to ask you about your color and your color sense. We see that you are very sensitive. And I wonder with your mother as an artist, Your mother paints, does she not, in in the folk traditions of India to some degree? Right. My mom does Indian folk art. And what's interesting about that is she did used to do all kinds of sketches and things, but she didn't realize or consider herself an artist until she saw me sketching on my own. Like she had that fine coordination and ability to draw But it wasn't a hobby she really seriously pursued until later on in adult life. 
the talent's always been there, but it wasn't something that she put together until later on. When we see online some of her images, there's an awful lot of color and a sense of pattern. And those are two words that you used in conversing with us about your art earlier. The sense of pattern is important to you. But we also see you now as we're talking about color. Do you think that the color that you see in your mother's work or the sense of pattern? We've almost found our styles to painting are almost the opposite. She's very invested in shapes and contour and like the exact details. So she also likes doing portraits for that reason. But I really like color and shading. So like a lot of my pieces, I hate doing the very small details until I'm adding color and layering and shading and making it adding depth to it. It's just not as interesting to me, whereas she's almost the opposite. A recent time we spoke to you, you were about to do murals for the walls of your medical school. And that project has come to fruition because you've set us some images with brains and lungs and things that are on the walls. Yeah, so those are right outside of our lecture halls for the first and second year classes. There's a giant heart that I did myself, and then the students all helped fill in. Students who had never even held paintbrushes before, they did the lungs and the brain with me also. Uh, Now we have another one that we're working on that's based on research that two of our school's campuses are working on together. That's also very color-based. It's immunofluorescence, but that basically means it's just really fluorescent, brightly lit parts of cells. They stain different cells to watch different processes. And the research they're doing is on HIV. So they want to see if they can disrupt this whole pathway and prevent things from going inside of cells. And then basically, if you can prevent those things from going in the cells, you've prevented HIV from infecting the cells. So they have a microscope in their Torre Nevada campus that they get all these really brightly colored blue, orange, and green images from. And I'm doing two really large three by three foot canvases that are of those microscopic images. I'm kind of like layering canvases on top of each other to get like a three dimensional sense to a very 2D thing. And I'll have the students also do different stages and images from the microscope that uh, are from our professor's lab, Dr. Mana's lab. Did the doctors invite you to do that, or was that an idea that you had and you came together with the school, or they just know who you are and what you can do, and they say, Liana, anything that strikes your fancy, do it? It sort of depends on the project. For this one, I'm head of our Creative Arts and Medicine Club, so I wanted to do a creative project for this semester, and I know Dr. Mana does some interesting research, so I asked him if he had any one project that would have striking visuals that we could work with. And then I spoke to the school and we're kind of working on this project right now. You've also shared some images of some of the students in your school, and they are first attending a lecture, and then also they are holding up hearts, and it looks like they've all done hearts, and they're all so happy, smiling, It looks like they've really caught on to this idea of drawing, painting, working with images of the things that you all are studying. Right. So last semester, when I made our big project was during Women in Medicine Month. So we did all these hearts and we worked with our professor, Dr. Connington, and she does all kinds of visual mnemonics for the sake of 
education, you memorize a picture and it has, if you can piece apart the different parts of the picture, you'll remember facts about an illness or some kind of pathophysiology. So she does her own specific for the class and we had her talk about that. And then in conjunction with that lecture, we had everyone painted different hearts in that were like, it was the same heart that everyone got and everyone did their own spin and interpretation on it. So it's been different for a lot of students because they don't have a lot of art background, but they've gotten to try all kinds of things that they didn't realize they'd have an interest in. And what are they saying about it that surprises them or makes them want to do more? We were talking, you and I, one of the times that you were here about the idea of structure and form and the organs, for example, and what those particular aspects of the heart, the valve, and so forth, knowing structurally what they do, but then creating an image somehow that deepens your understanding. Is that the kind of thing they might say? To them, I feel like it's more therapeutic. I think they've found that painting isn't something they tried before, but it's something that they should branch into. Because I typically schedule the paint nights right after we've had an exam or after we've had all kinds of things stacked up for weeks. And it's something completely different for them to try and get invested in and almost completely take their mind off of what the subject is. I think that'll be a little bit different for the fluorescent paint night because they'll be looking at something completely new. But it appeals to them because it's something so different from what they're used to doing. One thing that has stayed with me since we talked from the very first time is the fact that you are able to present and create images. You talked about layering and getting a 3D view of those fluorescent images. You have a sense when you're creating an organ, some of them, that they have real flesh and real heft. And I would love to hear how it is that you do, in fact, get that real viscera, that sense of real actual weight and fleshiness to the organs that you paint. I think when we last spoke about it, I hadn't even seen any of the donors in our anatomy lab. So that's kind of interesting because I realized once I got to the lab that there was a lot of accuracy to the texture and the way things look. Obviously, the colors were completely different, but I was surprised because working off of photographs, you can just sort of hope for the best and you're not sure that the references you're getting are completely accurate. But I've gotten the opportunity at Toro. I have the permission from the department chair of the anatomy department to work with the donors and sketch directly from those cadavers and paint. So I can look at samples of hearts and brains, and they're not just the pictures that I've been working on previously. I get to create those layers and see actual depth and create the lighting and perspective that I want to do all on my own. So that's really interesting. Usually I'm looking for the darkest parts of a camp piece or the lightest parts. In some senses, it's almost been more difficult to work in person because the light in that lab is very uniform so that everyone can see what you're doing. But I have to sort of rig it so it becomes more like an art studio and I'm going after hours and like shutting off certain lights and turning on other things and getting on this stool and <laughs> positioning things in a way that almost makes no sense to the anatomists who don't think from that perspective. But then later when they see the painting, it makes more sense to them. So I'm creating a lot of layers and depth through my own processes that seem to 
kind of escape other people, but it's it's a lot of attention to detail and lighting and I I wouldn't say color as much anymore because there's no color in the donors' bodies. It's all the same shade of beige, and I have to insert all that color myself. So if we were to see some of those images created from actual bodies and ones that you'd created previously from photographs, there would be a difference. I think so, because I've started emphasizing different things from that. Because the images I'd worked on previously were from live donors versus the preserved donors. The preserved donors all have the same beige background. So what I end up noticing or seeing is different than what I would focus on previously. So it's definitely changed some of the way I look at things. Is one of the images that you sent before our conversation, one looks like a Petri dish with some bacteria or something growing on it. There's another one that's circular that looks like it is a galaxy. It's green, bright green, and kind of orb-like shapes in it. Would that have been one of the... Uh, No, those aren't those. But uh, those are two, actually, that are hanging outside the research lab in a different theme because they're circular. And when I saw circular canvases, oddly enough, the first thing I thought of was Petri dishes. And I thought it would be really fun to do like as if it was a Petri dish, the auger and then the bacteria right on top. So those are two. One is Shigella on Hectoan auger. That's like that bright blue kind of thing with a galaxy-like figure on it. And then the other is it's on a charcoal auger. It's it's a serratia, Marsarin's bacteria. And it's like this bright red pigmented bacteria. Very stunning images. And we probably wouldn't want to be infected buy those things, but they're beautiful. Not particularly, but they do look nice. I'm always interested to see what your father has to say because he is a doctor. Has he seen some of this new work and does he have the same reaction that he might have before preferring the ones that are more anatomically correct and mom liking the ones that are more stylized? Is that still true? I think my mom has more of a tolerance for the scientific art than I expected. It's definitely grown, I think, probably spending time with me. She did used to like more of the stylized stuff, and he used to like the scientific things. I think he still does just like the scientific things. But I remember I finished one of the pieces that I sent you that's outside the research lab. It's like this giant yellow ochre mustard piece that's like four by five feet. It's got all kinds of bacteria and viruses all over it, like rotavirus and Ebola, and there's influenza. And they're all just different crazy colors. And at the end of finishing that one, my mom said, I'd hang this one in my living room. (laughs) Yeah, I was surprised because that's not her theme. But I think that's almost a point of success in what I'm trying to do is if someone who doesn't like the topic, if you don't like Ebola and you said, I'll hang Ebola and HIV in my living room. Well, that's kind of you've inspired some interest in those topics you might not have had before. And the pattern, there's an awful lot of movement and dynamism in that, even though it's a still image, whether it's the flagella or whatever. Yeah, I've got the bacteriophage kind of creeping in the center. It's got this prism glass look to it, and it's got almost tentacle-like green extensions that kind of creep across the center of the canvas. The thing that is also in so many people's minds still is the COVID pandemic. And you and I talked about a sketch that went viral almost that you did of the coronavirus and then surrounded by healthcare workers. Has the now extended pandemic while you've been in med school, has that 
public health crisis had an impact on the way you think about using some of your art, also perhaps things that you might be paying attention to more so in the work that you do? Has the pandemic affected you as an artist in any way? I think so, because a lot of the art is always sort of my spin on the way actual science looks in a way that's more appealing to other people. The whole fluorescence HIV project that I'm working on, I mean, when you hear AIDS, obviously, it's not a very pleasant topic. You're not really, you're not going to pick up the research topic on your own because the paper is on disrupting the VOR complex and the endosomes and and the, the verbiage gets very complicated and it's already daunting if you hear it. But when you see brightly colored dots on a canvas, you might be curious to hear more about it afterwards. Hearing the words, I think, scares people before visuals. One time when you were here, you were just about to go to med school and you said you hadn't decided on a concentration that you had done neuroscientific work, and but you also liked cardiology. Any more clues about what you're interested in in, in terms of your medical degree? I think I do like neurology still. I mean, we'll see because we haven't been into the hospitals yet, so we'll keep going. But um, that's still where I, I like uh, the t- the focus of um, where our studies have been so far. Mm-hmm. And when we look at your brains, you do many different approaches to the brain. There's the pink one on the that you all worked on for the mural series outside the auditorium. But we get that sense of the labyrinth almost as if there could be a metaphor or mythological sense about the complexity of our brains and what we see when we see your images. Do you think in those terms, or you just, when you're doing your brains, it's just either looking at the photograph or looking at what you can see from a cadaver or something like that? Or do you make those larger cultural connections sometimes? I think it really depends. I have one piece that I did with the American Medical Women's Association that wasn't a brain, but it's a uterus and then the fallopian tubes tie together to form a hanger on top. And that one was right after Roe v. Wade. So sometimes they have more of a cultural significance to them and it's not planned out, but it's something I just came up with. But then I was at the Met and I saw different pots with copper patina on it. And now I'm drawing a knee right now that has metallic paint and it's got like the copper patina I'm doing on top of it. But it's also going to be structurally the muscles and ligaments of a knee and your thigh. So it's going to have almost that appeal that all older like Greek art has, but with the anatomic structures. So like I don't necessarily look at a structure and have an idea for it. So much as the idea just comes to me and I like write it down or I have to get it started so I make sure that I work on it later. When your fellowship is up, do you have a responsibility to produce a body of work or like a thesis that would come out of a fellowship? What happens in 2023 when it's over? In March, at the end of March, we're going to speak in the National uh, American Medical Women's Association Conference. Myself and Dr. Ali will be talking about what we've gained from our work and the things that we feel we've learned together. And we might present some of our pieces. So we'll see how that goes. It should be interesting. How unusual is it for medical students, doctors to be active 
in an artistic way. Do you have any sense of that? I think previously it wasn't as common, but I'm seeing more and more people get involved in it, especially visually oriented fields like pathology seem to have a lot more artists involved in them. I'm seeing, especially with my social media engagement, that there's a lot of neurosurgery residents who are also drawing brains who seem to follow me. So I, I don't think it's a vastly common thing, but I do see it, it seems to be something that's becoming more common. When people hear our conversation, they'll certainly want to see some of your work. Do you have your own website or do you have a way for people to see what you're doing? Uh, yeah, I have an Instagram page that has all my art I'm regularly updating. It's just my name, Leanna's art underscore art on Instagram. Liana Pandey of Northeastern Pennsylvania, a medical student and an artist at the Turo College of Medicine in Middletown, New York. The American Medical Women's Association has just awarded Liana an Artist in Residence Fellowship for 2022-2023. To see some of Liana's work, as she just said, check her Instagram page, Liana's Art underscore art. Liana spoke about the discomfort many people feel as they hear or read complex scientific language and terminology, and that's part of the reason she values the power of art and visual images. And here's an example. She has asked us to share this information on behalf of Dr. David Manna at the school from the current HIV project that she just spoke about. So here it goes. These fluorescence images are showing the co-localization of HIV factors with infected host cell machinery that it parasitizes in order to cross into the nucleus. VOR complex is an abbreviation for three cell proteins that are found at the nuclear pore with the HIV pre-integration complex. When using a small molecule inhibitor of VOR complex formation, HIV does not cross into the nucleus and cause productive infection. That from Dr. Aurelio Lorico's lab at Turo, Nevada, and Liana has been a collaborator for about two years. No experiments, just helping them to understand the virology, planning experiments, and reviewing, editing our manuscript, as she put it. The hope is for her to start up a virology lab in Middletown centered around this project and we heard how she feels her images of those fluorescent cells in the course of this HIV project can help us get into the understanding of what's going on a bit better than what we just heard. Thank you, Liana. And you can, again, see some of Liana's work at the Instagram page she has, Liana's Art underscore art, and her name is spelled L-E-A-N-A Pandey. P-A-N-D-E, L-E-A-N-A-P-A-N-D-E. Instagram, Liana's Art underscore art. 